Hello, and welcome to the Pau Gasol episode of the Hoop Theory Podcast, aka episode 16. My name is Logan Wortman, and as always, it would be very much appreciated if you would follow the podcast feed and go subscribe to the Hoop Theory channel over on YouTube if you're not already. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, it'd be very cool if you would give the show a rating. All of those things would be very much appreciated. Now, let's get into the Pau Gasol 16th edition of the Hoop Theory Podcast. Last episode, we went through the Southwest Division in the NBA, went through all of those teams, did some preseason predictions. So now we're going to just keep on going through the West, move on to the Pacific Division, which has the Golden State Warriors, the LA Clippers, LA Lakers, the Phoenix Suns, and the Sacramento Kings. As always, there should be timestamps in the episode's description. If you would like to skip around to different teams, listen to those sections exclusively. But without further ado, let's get started with the Golden State Warriors. All right, so with the Warriors, obviously they are the reigning champs of the NBA. And last year they were the third seed in the West with a record of 53-29. and 29. Relatively pretty similar team that's coming back. They do have a decent amount of turnover for some of those ancillary pieces around, you know, their Steph, Clay, and Dre core. So mainly they lost Gary Payton II and Otto Porter Jr. Uh, I'd say those are their two biggest pieces that they lost. And then some other bench guys that, you know, were kind of their reserves kind of broke into the rotation when needed. That would be Juan Descano Anderson, as well as Damian Lee. They kind of went about replacing Gary Payton II with uh, the acquisition of Dante DiVincenzo this offseason, who they actually signed to a really, really team-friendly deal. It's only a two-year contract, about $4.6 million per year. I'm honestly really surprised that you know, that was his value, I guess, this season on the free agency market. You know, he's a solid defensive guard. He's got the size to be kind of a small wing even. So I think he can fill that uh, Gary Payton second role with ease for them. Like, it won't be like they're missing too much. I mean, he's not the same kind of just elite on-ball, stick-to-your-man type of defender that Gary Payton second is. You know, I, I think GP2 is in some rarefied air for current backcourt defenders in that sense. But, you know, in essence, or in effect, with the role that he'll be playing on this Warriors team, doing a passable job uh, defending those, you know, best perimeter players and being able to switch, play team defense really well. Um, And on the offensive end, he is much, much more uh, than what Gary Payton II was bringing to the table. You know, maybe not quite the same thing in terms of just athleticism, you know, that's how they were using Gary Payton II for the most part, being a a quick cutter and even a lob threat at times, despite only being like 6'2". DiVincenzo, though, is like, you know, a good 6'4", and can shoot a little bit better than they were used to with Gary Payton. He's pretty erratic with this jump shot uh, from three-point range, but as far as percentages go and the system that he was just playing in with Milwaukee, he's very, very used to, you know, just being a catch-and-shoot guy, relocating off the ball, getting open shots from behind the three-point line, as well as attacking closeouts. He is a guy who can handle the ball a bit on the offensive end and score in a pinch, really. So, you know, like I said, he's not going to be the same exact player that Gary Payton II was, but I'm sure that he's going to be playing the same type of position, same type of role that GP was um, while he was there last year. And I think they overall won't lose a whole lot in terms of their production. And so then the other big piece that I feel like is a pretty big part of who they were last year was having Otto Porter Jr. as a really reliable 3 and D wing 
big wing for that matter at a good six foot eight. So I think that void is going to be filled by the youth on this roster, which is pretty promising. Um, obviously, in theory, should be very promising, being that they have the second overall pick from a few years ago. And then I want to say the number seven and 14 pick from last year's draft in James Wiseman, Jonathan Kaminga, and Moses Moody, respectively. You know, Wiseman obviously going to be playing more of a big man role, most likely. But with Kaminga, as well as Moody, you know, they showed some flashes uh, even in the playoffs last year. Both of them definitely capable of playing that Otto Porter-esque role, especially Moody with, I think he'll be more of the reliable spot-up shooter. Uh, Kaminga, a lot more athleticism and ability to play inside a bit more. On the defensive end, uh, he's going to be more than enough to make up for the loss of Otto Porter Jr. So honestly, I think they're pretty safe there um, in terms of guys that they lost. They can fill those spots in pretty well. And actually, even beyond Kaminga and Moody there at the wing spot, they also have Patrick Baldwin Jr., who's their first-round pick from this summer's draft. And I believe he was the 28th pick, I want to say. But, you know, he's another 6'8 wing that could potentially, you know, come in and fill that spot as well. But I definitely bet on seeing more of Kaminga and Moody getting some run this season. But, yeah, I just thought I would mention Patrick Baldwin Jr. as well, um, especially since he was a really highly rated recruit coming out of high school that kind of fell really, really far after his freshman year in college at Milwaukee. Wasn't super tuned in to Milwaukee watching him this season. But from what I've heard, some people just think, you know, it was a bit of a down year combined with not really having any talent around him for the most part and not being in a super competent, you know, NBA style system uh, at a small school. He ended up going there because I think his dad is the head coach there, I want to say, um, or maybe assistant, something like that. But yeah, it's like the Warriors to get, you know, a super high upside pick at number 28, similar to a pick they've had in the past with Jordan Poole and Draymond Green. But yeah, it'll also be interesting to see what we get from Jordan Poole this upcoming season after him having a breakout season last year and having a real, you know, just coming out party in the playoffs. We'll see if he can continue to, I guess, grow into that third splash brother in Golden State keep up the really good free throw shooting as well as three point shooting and just be another, you know, dynamic option for them with or without the ball. Like how I said earlier with uh, their core being Steph, Clay and Dre, um, I'd actually expand that a little bit now. I'd say if you're going to include Clay and Draymond uh, in there, then you'd also have to include Andrew Wiggins and Jordan Poole as kind of like, you know, their five man core. Now all those guys are going to be really important and really impactful for this Warriors team. Wiggins kind of playing the role that Clay used to play, defensively speaking at least, with being, you know, the main perimeter slash wing defender on their team. So those five guys obviously will be in the rotation. Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Andrew Wiggins, Jordan Poole. And then the other guys that I think are pretty much locks for the rotation, but just on a lesser level than the guys I started off with. Dante DiVincenzo, you know, filling that GP2 role. And also Kavon Looney, I think we'll see still. I'd be a little bit surprised if Wiseman just comes in and is playing all the time. You know, they're still going to be using a traditional center 
at some points during the season. And from what we've seen from Wiseman so far, he probably won't be playing the entire season and won't be ready to just assume that role fully. So I definitely think we'll still be seeing some Kevon Looney, um, perhaps, you know, a good amount, same type of amount that we've been seeing the last few years. And then Jonathan Kaminga is another guy I wanted to throw in here just because I'm pretty confident in um, him being, you know, at least minor part of the rotation regularly. I think, you know, he's going to kind of absorb those Otto Porter Jr. minutes. But yeah, so those are the eight guys that I feel like are have a pretty good chance of being in the rotation. And then I have three guys that I feel like are, you know, potentially going to be in the rotation, but definitely wouldn't be surprised either way. And those three guys are Moses Moody, James Wiseman, and Nemanja Bielica. Bielica is the only veteran out of those guys, but, you know, I, f- I feel like we might see him play the same type of role that he did last year, um, similar type of minutes and everything. Probably see his role grow a little bit more with injuries and stuff like that, but you know, fully healthy team. He might get in, might not. It might just depend on the matchup they have that game. And then some other guys I thought I would mention as, you know, they could be in rotation, but probably not. So these are like less than a 50-50. Those guys I just read off were more like a 50-50. These guys are like, I'd be a little bit more surprised if they were in it, but I also could see them in some type of world being in there. And that is Jermichael Green, who I I feel the best about probably in this group just because Golden State always needs some size uh, to roll out there. And then Patrick Baldwin Jr. And then I have Andre Iguodala in here as just kind of, who knows, (laughs) maybe he has a little bit of a resurgence, I don't know. And then Mac McClung was the last name I wanted to put on here just because he's a fun player. It'd be cool to see him, you know, get some run on the Warriors team this upcoming season. Yeah, Uh, as far as record predictions for the ceiling on the Golden State Warriors, I have them at 65 and 17. So a very, very, very good season, one of the best seasons ever. But I definitely think that if this team is just firing on all cylinders, they stay healthy. Like I I really do think that is a type of level that they could reach, rolling out 65 wins. And then... Their floor I have them at is 44 and 38, um, which I think is going to be a little bit lower than some of these other top of the top teams that I'll be reading off. And that's just because I think the Warriors are a little bit more fragile with injuries than other teams are. Um, Just because, you know, if you take Steph out of the equation, they're a much, much worse team. And Steph is a little bit more prone to injuries than other stars typically. Uh, I guess I kind of try to factor that in to it a little bit. So I put their floor at 44 and 38. And then for a reasonable prediction, I'm going to put them at 56 and 26, which, spoiler alert, is going to be my best reasonable prediction of all the teams in the league, unless something changes before I record you know, these future episodes that still have yet to come. But for now, at least, Golden State, I have them at 56 and 26 as the first seed in the West. And so that brings me to the next team in the Pacific Division, which is the Los Angeles Clippers, who, along with the Golden State Warriors, I think will be one of the best teams in the Western Conference and one of the main title contenders in the NBA this coming season. Their record last year was 42-40, and 40, which was good for the eighth seed in the West before the play-in tournament happened and 
the New Orleans Pelicans, who I think had six less regular season wins than the Clippers did, advanced into the first round of the playoffs because the Clippers lost in their first planned game against the Timberwolves in the 7-8 game. And then they lost that second game, too, against the Pelicans, which put the Pelicans into the C8 seed. So I didn't realize that uh, in the official standings now, it's going to show the Clippers as the 9 seed last year and the Pelicans as the 8 seed. But apparently that's how they're showing it, at least on Google, when I look up the NBA standings from last season. Even though it shows right next to the team's name that the Pelicans had six less wins than the Clippers, but they're a spot higher. Which I just think is kind of dumb to put the standings like that. But yeah, that's just me. And I also, I don't know if I've talked about this in a while, but I'm also still a big fan of doing the way that they originally thought up the playing tournament um, when they did it in the bubble instead of how they do it now. Because how they did it in the bubble was like the playing tournament isn't always going to happen. It will only happen if there's a team close enough to the eight seed in that conference and then they would enter a play-in. So I think it was if the team in the nine seed uh, at the end of the regular season is within four games of the um, eight seed, then they would enter a play-in tournament. And I even think it should continue like that, like having multiple teams in the play-in tournament should be possible. Like if the 10 seed is within four or maybe five, if you want to extend it out since it's a farther gap in seeding, if they're within a certain amount from the seven seed, then they enter the play-in tournament as well. I, I just think it should work like that instead of having a season where just like last year, there's a drop off from eight to nine of, you know, six whole wins. And it's like, okay, we really just want to put this up to one game. If, you know, if that team with 36 wins beats the team with 42 in one game, then now they're in the postseason instead. It's yeah. I don't know. I think it should be a little bit closer of overall records for it to even be able to happen. But anyways, getting back to the Clippers. The record last year was 42-40, and 40, which was good for the 8th seed in the West in the regular season. Their key losses, I didn't have anybody. Can't think of anybody, at least, off the top of my head. That would be gone. That's major. But, you know, they have some major key additions. Um, and I guess for those of you wondering who aren't as familiar with the NBA, why I said at the beginning that the Clippers are going to be one of my best teams in the league, one of the main contenders for me in the NBA, but last year the record was just over 500, 42 and 40, and they didn't even make the playoffs ultimately. If you're wondering why that is, that's really just because they had their best player out for the entirety of last season with an injury, Torrey ACL and Kawhi Leonard. And then Paul George missed a majority of the season as well. He had just recently come back by playoff time, but really anything can happen in a one game scenario like the play in. But yeah, so I have both Kawhi and Paul George on here as key additions because they're theoretically going to be returning to a healthy season. I doubt we'll see Kawhi play more than like 60-something games just because we haven't seen that in a long time, even when he's relatively healthy by his standards. And then another key addition, obviously, is John Wall, uh, who they got from the Rockets. He's going to be kind of an X factor for them. We'll see how productive he can be. Uh, for a winning team at this point in his career. But definitely a big upside signing. Signing him to a two-year deal uh, worth about $6 million per year, I think. who's a mid-level exception. But yeah, in the rotation, 
This is going to be another one of those teams that has a small number of like locks for the rotation for me and then a bunch of people in the competition for rotation because they have a lot of really good players, like not just playable players, but like a step above that, you know, like players that you really want to play borderline starter level players. They have a lot of them. I have Luke Kennard on here as the 10th guy, and he could start on, I'd say, at least half the teams in the NBA, or at least close to that. Robert Covington is another guy who could probably start on some teams in the NBA still, and he's right behind him at 11. So, yeah, in the rotation, though, for the first tier, guys that I know will be playing like a lot, and I'm pretty positive they're going to be starting as well, and that's Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Norman Powell. And then for that next tier, so the guys that, like, I'd bet money on all of these guys playing at least a decent amount this regular season when healthy. But just, I guess, how things shake up, how Ty Lue decides to map out the rotations and who kind of earns minutes over who else, you know, uh, is really going to change who really comes out of this group more prominent than the others. But in this tier, I have Terrence Mann, Reggie Jackson, Nick Batum, John Wall, Ivica Zubats, and Marcus Morris. Um, I think Zubats will definitely be playing um, whenever they need a traditional center, but I'll be interested to see how much they move even further towards that like all-wing lineup that they've been going to the past couple years, especially in the playoffs, where they don't play Zubats quite as much. They have enough personnel to do that for sure. So, yeah, I think Ivica Zubats is going to be more of a positional type of player in the rotation i'm guessing he'll probably start most of the regular season but they'll switch to that all wing lineup when needed and then on the next tier below that uh just you know kind of i feel like there's a little bit of a drop off to these next guys i wouldn't be as surprised if these these guys here were buried in the rotation more and we didn't see them quite as much and that is luke Kennard, um, mainly just for defensive reasons we've seen tyloo avoid using him in some playoff matchups and stuff like that uh, because he's one of the few, probably the only player on their team that you can really hunt on defense other than, I guess, Ivica Zupac just because, you know, he's a traditional center. So there's definitely some actions you can put him in to try to exploit that. But Luke Kennard being undersized for the wing position, not the best in terms of, you know, switching and stuff like that. So he's just kind of the clear weak link on the floor whenever he is in a lineup on this team, just because of how exceptional the rest of the roster is at those things. But yeah, so I have Kennard and then Robert Covington, Brandon Boston Jr. and Amir Coffey. Um, for Brandon Boston and Amir Coffey, you know, they, I think, had some pretty good seasons last year with Kawhi and Paul George out for the most part, and they were dealing with a lot of other injuries too throughout the season. You know, they shined a little bit more coming in as kind of the young guns on this team. So it'll be interesting to see if one of them takes a leap and maybe breaks into this tier above or breaks into the rotation more so than I'm expecting. But, you know, just these other guys that I have above them are just definitely more proven in their careers at this point. So I feel like they're the safer picks. And then I decided to include one last tier, just some guys that I don't feel like will probably be seen in the rotation very much but i've heard some things about you know people bringing them up in terms of uh hey don't be surprised if you know maybe you see more of this guy this next season so i have them on their own tier as jason preston um who's another one of those young guys for 
the Clippers, but I don't think we've really seen him yet uh, in a Clippers uniform, I want to say. I think he was out all last year, which was his rookie year. Um, I'm actually not entirely sure on anything that I just said there, but I that's at least what I thought. I'll fact check myself really quick. Yeah, he has not played yet, and he was in the 2021 NBA draft. So I think what I said was correct. The other guy I have on that tier is Rodney Hood, um, who's just struggled with injuries at this point in his career and really hasn't been on the floor much. But, you know, I guess there's some potential there for a comeback. Once upon a time, he was a pretty good 3 and D player. Um, I don't know if the defense will hold up quite as much with uh, the knee injuries that he's had. At least the three will still be there. But yeah, for the ceiling on this Los Angeles Clippers team, I have them at 60 and 22. And their floor, I have them at 42 and 40, which was their record from last year. And that's, you know, if we see just kind of a repeat of last year with a lot of injuries, then could go a similar way. And competition's a bit tougher this year as well, like I've been saying. But for the reasonable prediction, I have them at 52 and 30. And I think that the Clippers, just in general, um, really any team with Kawhi Leonard is going to be better overall. Like I'm going to rank them higher on a list where we're talking about contenders or, you know, just who's most likely to to win it all or who's the best team in the league. They're going to rank higher on that list than their regular season or record will look or will suggest. And that's just like from what I said before, Kawhi has been load managing his seasons the past like five, six years now, something like that, uh, to where he plays only about 60 games. He takes off all the back-to-backs and strategically kind of sits out where he feels like he needs his rest. That's just because he's having to play through an injury that's going to, I think, last him the rest of his career because I believe it's a degenerative knee injury that's not really going to be going away, but he's trying to maximize his health, I guess, for you know playing basketball throughout a season. So yeah, ceiling 60 and 22, floor 42 and 40, and my reasonable prediction is 52 and 30. All right, now on to the inner city rivals of the Los Angeles Clippers, the Los Angeles Lakers, which I definitely think the Clippers have earned that inner city rival sort of title at this point. Before, it used to be kind of laughable to even call it that because of what the Lakers franchise is compared to the Clippers, just in terms of their fan base and history and all that which still obviously is a one-sided affair, but the Clippers have definitely been the more competent team these past couple years, and for a stretch even before that, really the only time the Lakers have risen above the Clippers the past like 10 years has been the 2020 season where they won the championship. It's at least more of a discussion now than it used to be. But yeah, with the Lakers, their record last year was 33-49, and which was 11th in the West. I believe their over-under was 50 and a half. I want to say, or maybe 51 and a half, something like that. And they're a team I think I locked. Did I lock the under? Maybe I didn't lock it, but I should have, definitely should have. It was very easy for me to go under on them last year. I was a little bit scared, obviously, with a team that has LeBron James and Anthony Davis. But I was like, just looking at that roster and expecting it to be good or expecting it to win that many games, it went against everything in my brain, like just philosophically about the way that I view basketball and the way I view the NBA and team building and everything like that is just like, it made no sense. I was like, you've got these big names, but there's just no rhyme or reason to this roster that's been assembled 
how is it going to fit together? Like in what way are they going to be able to succeed on the court? It didn't make any sense without having any shooting around three guys who are three of the most like in need of having spacing around them in the league. You're putting them all together and you had really no defenders left either. Like every team in the NBA is so centered around three and D like those are like the main pieces that you want to fit around your stars and want to build around everything with in the NBA today. The Lakers just completely were void of that had no three and D players at all. And they had barely any three players and barely any D players, you know, just by themselves. And then, you know, obviously the injuries with Anthony Davis and LeBron James didn't help uh, throughout the season. LeBron, I think played like 56 games, maybe something like that. And then uh, AD only played like 30 something, I want to say. And obviously Russell Westbrook struggled with not having like a normal team around him and having to fit more into this limited role that he's never shown any inkling of doing in the past. So, you know, that was definitely a struggle. And eventually it just got all blamed on their head coach, Frank Vogel, which I don't think he was the best coach in the world, but I really didn't think the things that went wrong last season were due to him. It was much, much, much more on the front office and, you know, just the roster building decisions that they made last offseason. It really should have been blamed on that, to be honest. Not only did you trade, you know, Kyle Kuzma and Contavious Caldwell-Pope, which were two of the staples of that elite defensive team in 2020 that won the championship. They were also two of their more reliable shooters. Like KCP was definitely one of the most reliable shooters on their team. Kuzma, a little bit more streaky, but still a lot better than stuff they have now. They traded both those guys, plus some more, for Russell Westbrook, who is not additive to them at all. He's really more of an addition by subtraction, I would say. If he wasn't on the team, they would be better, just because he kind of just, he gets in the way of what they should be trying to do, which is surround LeBron and AD with 3 and D guys. And Westbrook is one of the worst volume shooters in NBA history. I don't even think one of. I think it's been statistically proven that he is the worst volume shooter in the history of the league. He doesn't do much off ball. He needs the ball in his hands to operate, which is a very similar attribute, I guess, that LeBron has as well. LeBron's play style is very heliocentric. So pairing two guys that are both like that to a fault, uh, pairing them together, and then they have other compounding weaknesses on top of that, like spacing and shooting. LeBron's obviously the far superior shooter to Russell Westbrook, but but still, that's always been one of his bigger weaknesses on the offensive end. But even on top of making that Russell Westbrook trade that never should have been made, Rob Polinka also let uh, Alex Crusoe walk in the offseason because they wanted to keep Taylor Horton Tucker on their team instead of Alex Crusoe. Just because he was young and obviously, I guess, had more potential. Um, if you, I mean, I guess some could argue against that, but. You're not crazy if you thought that THD had more potential than Alex Crusoe last offseason just because of the age thing and physical tools and stuff. But obviously, from what we had seen from Taylor Horton Tucker so far in his career, which had been a couple of years already, was that he really wasn't going to fit as a 3 and D wing anytime soon. Defense, sure, uh, for the on-ball factor of it. But, you know, still young and inexperienced, has a way to go on that end. But, you know, very poor shooter from the outside. Alex Crusoe was consistently one of the best players on the, that Lakers team with LeBron. 
like the best lineups that they ever rolled out there in the LeBron era of the Lakers were lineups that had both LeBron and Alex Caruso on the floor together. Just a very, very useful 3 and D point guard who the Bulls are definitely glad that they have and would fit just so well on this Lakers team because he would meet a need that they very desperately have. And I think there was even something on top of that too that they lost. I guess Dennis Schroeder. But that one wasn't too major because, at least from what we heard, uh, he was asking for more money than he was worth. But nevertheless, they lost all their 3 and D guys and acquired Russell Westbrook. And, you know, what really makes that even worse that I should probably mention is right before they made the Russ deal, they actually had another deal that was, at least from reports, like literally on its way. Like it, it was everybody was under the impression that this deal was happening on both teams, the Kings and the Lakers. And that was basically the same trade package that they made for Russell Westbrook, which was Kyle Kuzma, KCP, and Montrez Harrell, I believe. Just taking that same trade package, but subtracting, I think, either Kuzma or KCP. It was one of those players was not in the deal. And they would be acquiring Buddy Heald instead, which Buddy Heald is one of the greatest shooters in the league. You know, he definitely leaves some things to be desired on the defensive end, but he's still a good size. And just the amount of spacing that he provides is almost unparalleled and would do wonders for that Lakers offense. So the fact that that deal was on the table just makes it so much worse. And at the last second, pulled out of that deal because Russell Westbrook had asked Tommy Shepard, the GM of the Wizards, to trade him to the Lakers. I guess all I'm trying to say is the record last year was unpredictably predictable, I guess, if you want to call it that. Part of me just really wanted to view it as that's what it was going to happen. They were like, there's no way this team is going to win games. But another part of me was just also hesitant because we've never really seen a LeBron-led team do that before, like somehow not be at least okay. So there was like a immovable object meeting a um, unstoppable force type of thing. But, you know, the record probably would have been a little bit better if LeBron and AD played more last season, but AD especially was just not even effective while he was playing compared to his normal self, like when he was on the floor last year. So hopefully he turns that around this year as well for the Lakers' sake, I guess. But yeah, they have a new head coach in Darvin Ham, um, who's from the Budenholzer coaching tree. But, you know, the Budenholzer tree is kind of like a branch of the Popovich tree, I guess. So, but yeah, Darvin Ham was on Budenholzer's staff with the Hawks for that 60-win Atlanta team that had no stars, really. Well, they had four all-stars, actually, so I take that back. But, you know, all of them were not typical all-stars. You know, they had Jeff Teague, Kyle Korver, Damari Carroll, Paul Millsap, and Al Horford was their starting five, and four of those guys were all-stars. I think it was everybody except Damari Carroll. But yeah, also on that coaching staff, Quinn Snyder and Taylor Jenkins as well, who's doing some really good work in Memphis. Quinn Snyder, I don't know where he's at now after, obviously he's been with the Jazz for a long time now, but he stepped away after last season when the writing was on the walls of where the franchise was going to be going. I don't think he is hired at the moment. Yeah, I'm not really sure where he is right now. But yeah, and then when Budenholzer moved to Milwaukee, um, Darvin Ham 
and Taylor Jenkins were also assistants on his staff there. Not Quinn Snyder because he had already taken the Utah job at that point. So Darvin Ham comes from a very successful line of coaches. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But yeah, their key losses, I haven't even gotten to any of the notes for this team yet, but their key losses are Malik Monk, which definitely hurts in the shooting department. Um, I have Mello in here, but I'm also not sure if he's on the team or not. Um, that's kind of up in the air at this point. I don't think he's technically signed yet, but I have Mello on here. And if that is true, if he's not going to be on the roster this upcoming season, that hurts for shooting as well. Tatum Horton Tucker, Stanley Johnson, Avery Bradley, Wayne Ellington, uh, and Dwight Howard. The, and that's just looking at their current spot track data, all the contracts that they have on their books. Like Malink Monk is definitely for sure gone, but I think Mello and Wayne Ellington and even Dwight, maybe even Avery Bradley as well, um, are all still just sitting there in free agency. I think a couple of those guys would be worth picking back up because they were some of the rare guys on the roster that actually fit the style of play that they kind of need. But then the key additions I have for the Lakers are Patrick Beverly, who they got in the trade recently from Utah. They gave up Tan Horton Tucker and Stanley Johnson in exchange for him. And then Lonnie Walker IV, Thomas Bryant, Troy Brown Jr., Juan Descano Anderson, and Damian Jones. And then some guys that they got in the draft as well. They got Max Christie at 35th pick out of Michigan State. They also got Scottie Pippen Jr., as an undrafted free agent out of Vanderbilt. And then I also put LeBron and AD in here for health as key additions. But I guess let's talk about the guys that they added that I like, which is definitely Patrick Beverly, I think, helps them. But again, if Russ isn't on this team moving forward, I think that would be for the best. Um, even at this point, if they're just losing him for nothing, because that makes this team better, because he's not in the way of these other guys that fit their system more stylistically. But yeah, Pat Bev is going to be, you know, 3 and D point guard. Lonnie Walker the fourth, another 3-ish, D-ish guard. Um, he's kind of a little bit more of like a spark plug guy, but I don't hate that one. Also isn't like exactly what they need. And Thomas Bryant, I think, is going to be a pretty good one for them as a stretch big. Troy Brown Jr., another theoretical 3 and D guy, but, you know, Lonnie Walker and Troy Brown are both subpar shooters. At least they have been so far in their careers. And then Juan Descano Anderson, kind of similar thing. Higher upside on the defensive side of the ball, though, with him. Damian Jones, I think, is a pretty irrelevant pickup. I don't think he's going to be playing much of a role. And then the guys they got in the draft, I guess we'll have to wait and see. In the rotation, they're definitely going to have LeBron, AD, uh, Patrick Beverly. Put Russell Westbrook in here as well. As long as, you know, he's on the team, I guess I'm just going to put him in here because I don't see a world in which he just isn't playing, I guess. when well, maybe I do, but I'd, I'd be a little bit surprised by that. And then Lonnie Walker IV, Austin Reeves, I think is definitely going to be getting some minutes again this year just for that 3 and D necessity that they have. Thomas Bryant, I think, will be in the rotation. Uh, Kendrick Nunn, if he's healthy, we'll probably see him get some minutes. And possibly Troy Brown Jr. as well. So that's nine guys there. Those are the best nine guys for the rotation that I feel like they have right now. I think they just got Dennis Schroeder too, actually. So I think that happened since I wrote out these notes. So he's definitely going to be in the rotation as well as another 3 and D point guard. It seems like they're kind of preparing for 
a Russ departure with having two new point guards, Patrick Beverly and Dennis Schroeder, but um, who knows? But for the ceiling on this team, I put them at 48 and 34, and that's just like, I don't know, if something somehow this team gels and guys stay healthy, I, I don't know, that's just where I decided to put the ceiling. I'd be, I'd be really surprised if they win more than that. But I put their floor at 31 and 51, which actually feels a lot more realistic than their ceiling. Eh, maybe not. Maybe about the same. Because, uh, yeah, I don't really think they'll have a worse record than they did last season. I think they're slightly better. So for my reasonable prediction, I put them at 500, 41 and 41. Just because, yeah, I, I don't really know how they're going to perform, but that feels about right. I'm just going to put them right there at even. So yeah, that's my prediction for the Lakers. All right, so now on to the Suns, which I don't even know how to start talking about this one. There's a lot of things that we can go off on, but I already spent a lot of time on the Lakers, so I don't know if we will. But yeah, the last few weeks for the Suns have been very, very interesting, mainly with the whole Robert Sarver situation, which for those that don't know, Robert Sarver has been the owner of the Suns for quite a while now. Um, I think at least all the way since like early 2000s. I'm not sure exactly when he bought the team, but he's been there for, he was there for the Steve Nash era, at least some of it. Um, I know for sure. So it's been quite a while, probably since like at least 04, um, that range. But regardless, he's been kind of widely regarded for quite a few years now as one of the league's worst guys <laughs> just like the consensus or just the overall opinion from people across the league has always seemed to be pretty negative um when it comes to robert sarver whether it be you know players that have uh been on the suns or you know media people that have interacted with him and you know stuff like that one thing that i've been thinking about a lot since all this stuff has been coming out has been Raja bell's stories about what it was like having robert sarver as your team owner and, you know, Raja Bell co-hosts a podcast on The Ringer called Real Ones, I believe. But, you know, I've heard him go into some stories in the past where he's talked about interactions that he and his wife have had with Robert Sarver through his time there in Phoenix. And just about basically why he doesn't regard him as a good person. I guess just one thing for an example that he said happened was when he was negotiating a new contract with Phoenix... Sarver was offering Raja a lot less money than he was going to be worth on the open market. So, you know, Raja Bell was like, you know, I'm a big fan of this organization. I want to spend a lot of years here and continue to be a part of the contending teams, you know, that, that we've had these past few years. I want to continue playing here. But, you know, I'm worth more than that. And Robert Sarver replied by saying, I know you are, but I'm not going to give you what you're worth because I don't have to. Which, from a business standpoint, is like, fine. He, you can choose not to sign a player to what they're demanding on the open market. Like, that's fine if you want to do that. But just the fact that he would say that to a player that is currently on his team, and he was discussing like a contract extension with, I don't even think he was a free agent. I might be misremembering that, but still, doesn't really seem like the way you should go about that interaction. But yeah, basically the point is a lot of people don't like Robert Sarver. So last year when it was first announced that the league was going to be doing a full-blown investigation into 
uh, the Robert Sarver situation. Actually, that, that might have been a third party investigation. Now that I'm thinking about it. No, actually, no, it was the league. It was the league. I'm pretty sure. I think it was the NBA. Um, I think the Yudoka stuff was the third party investigation. But yeah, the Sarver stuff, the NBA initiated an investigation last offseason. And so then just a few weeks ago, we got basically the results of that investigation. And, you know, I don't need to go through all of the stuff that they found on him. Like it's it's really just a bunch of things that obviously an owner or like a person in power shouldn't do or shouldn't like interact with people like the way that he does or or the way that he's reported to do just being a bit inappropriate with female employees and just kind of overstepping boundaries a lot and not using the most uh, i guess politically correct language i don't know what to call it in situate or professional i'll call it professional he, like not using the most professional language in a lot of uh circumstances but yeah that, that was basically the stuff they got him on and the league doesn't really have the power to take away somebody's team to like force somebody to sell a team unless all the other team owners put it to a vote and i'm not sure what the threshold is but something like three quarters or an overwhelming majority of the other league owners if they vote that you know somebody has to sell the team or get removed from the ownership role or, or whatever i think they can do that but adam silver the commissioner of the nba can't just wave a finger and you know uh remove somebody's team from them and so that's what people were expecting him to do i guess and that, I think that's just because people remember the Donald Sterling saga like unfolding like that, you know, because there was that speech that Adam Silver gave that was basically like, here's the punishment that you have or banning you from the NBA or whatever. But like nobody's really given Adam Silver or the league the power to do that. So he's just it's kind of like a political thing. You know how politicians say things sometimes that they know and like many other people in politics know that they can't actually do but they say they're doing it just because that gets a good reaction from the people that they want support from you know because they're they're like hey i'm going to do this thing and people are like oh i want you to do that thing so then people support them <laughs> you know it's like a political tactic that people use a lot i think that's basically what that was cuz like the league didn't actually force Donald Sterling to sell the team like he still made the choice to and it was really from reports and stuff that was actually like his ex-wife who did uh, the bulk of the convincing I guess and the NBA I'm pretty sure actually rewarded her for that either rewarded her or like she said uh, she would convince him to sell if they would do something for her in return I think that's actually what happened and that was like she gets lifetime season tickets to Clippers games even though like I heard Zach Lowe make this point, like she's not much more innocent than Donald Sterling was because, you know, throughout Donald Sterling's checkered past of, you know, racial uh, stereotyping or what's it called? Like, you know, he was a landlord. He owned a bunch of apartments and uh, he wasn't renting to tenants of a certain, you know, skin color and was choosing to avoid them. You know, he was discriminatory in choosing people to rent to but you know she ran the business along with him and therefore is somewhat guilty of, of that stuff too you know that's at least what's you know in the stories that have been done on that topic but 
regardless, I don't know why I started going off on that. But yeah, so in this situation with Robert Sarver, people wanted Adam Silver to just say, you know, we're banning you from the league, you know, some type of thing, like he said with with uh, Donald Sterling. I don't know why he went about it a different way this time um, exactly, to be honest. Maybe it's because, like, I don't know if he faced some sort of trouble or some sort of, you know, stuff from the whole Donald Sterling thing, and he didn't want to repeat that um, almost mistake or, or something like that again. I don't know. But he basically gave out the punishment of, you know, we're banning you from interacting with the team and being around the league and all that kind of stuff for a year. So he's still the owner of the team, but we're banning you from doing NBA stuff for a whole season. And a lot of people got really upset about that verdict. You know, a lot of players came out on social media and stuff and in opposition to Adam Silver's decision, as well as Robert Sarver as a person, like most notably Chris Paul, as well as LeBron, but especially Chris Paul being a player on the Suns, saying that the punishment needs to be more severe. But, you know, there were also many people just mad at Adam Silver in the league, I guess, for that decision. And like, I even saw some people say, like, Adam Silver's now setting a precedent that it's okay for owners to uh, be racist, like, you know, say the N-word and be sexist and, and commit harassment and all this kind of stuff. You know, like that Adam Silver's saying that all of that is okay and is fine to do because he's not taking the team away from him, I guess, is why people were saying that. But the thing is, like, he still did put out a pretty big punishment of taking away the team for an entire season. I'm not saying that punishment was enough either. I'm not saying I disagree with those people who are saying that punishment was enough. My thing is just, it's kind of a messy where does Adam Silver even have the power to do that? Are we sure that's how this whole thing works? Because from what I know, at least, I don't, I don't think he technically does. Robert Sarver owns, financially owns, that like it's like he's owning a house. Can your HOA just come and tell you, hey, we're kicking you out of your house because you said a certain word or, you know, like you did something that was morally inexcusable even, you know? Some people might applaud that and be like, yeah, great job, HOA, for going and punishing that person. But it's also like, he, can they do that? I don't think they can. <laughs> so, yeah, there's my very intelligent take on on the uh, Robert Sarver situation. But yeah, regardless of Adam Silver, whether or not he has the power to take Sarver's team away or not, uh, Robert Sarver is still deciding to sell the team. And so he's looking for possible suitors, you know, letting people make their offers and stuff like that. And from just, you know, hearing some stuff from like people around the league talking, seems like is going to be a very, very expensive deal. You know, it's the first team that's really sold in a while other than Minnesota, which was really cheap, honestly, for what NBA teams are valued at right now. And people speculate that that might be because Glenn Taylor was buddies with Mark Laurie, so he gave him a good deal. But also, the Timberwolves are just a much, much smaller market than Phoenix. And I think the other one was Utah recently, too. And I think that was probably more 
than the Minnesota one was, but still not like a whole lot. But, you know, Jazz are probably not very high in the list of the most expensive teams or the biggest markets, you know. But Phoenix, I think, is probably in the top half. Bill Simmons actually had this list that he talked about. You said the top eight teams. Like there's there's eight markets or eight teams in the NBA that are just like a different level of assets when compared to the other uh, 22 teams. I believe he said the Lakers, the Celtics. I'm probably not going to get them in his exact order, but I think those would be the top two. Unless, or no, Knicks. Okay, so Knicks, Lakers, Celtics. I think he said Dallas. Probably not this early, but I think he said them. Uh, Chicago, I think, was a higher one. He might have mentioned Houston. Probably did. Golden State was much higher in this. And then Phoenix. Yeah, that would be eight. So I don't, I'm not sure if Houston, oh, instead of Houston, it was Miami. I think that's what it was. So the Knicks, the Lakers, the Warriors, the Bulls, the Heat, the Mavericks, the Celtics, I think I didn't say them this time, and the Suns. All those teams are going to be much more expensive than the other ones. But yeah, to mention Bill Simmons again, his prediction for like the sale price, what it, what it's going to be evaluated at and sold for is going to be like four and a half billion. So yeah, for potential suitors, I've heard Jeff Bezos as one of them, um, which would be interesting to have Jeff Bezos as a NBA owner. But yeah, I'll probably be done talking about the uh, Suns franchise as like an asset now and get on to basketball. So the Suns record last year, which I usually say this at the top, but I forgot to say that the record last year was 64 and 18, which was the best in the league by a pretty good margin. I think they won eight more games than anybody else did last year. And that was even with Chris Paul missing, I don't know, like a month, four to six weeks, somewhere in there. And Devin Booker missed a few weeks too, but you know, they were just rolling. So you know, if they can tap back into any sense of that, they should be good, to be honest. But there's this all this other stuff surrounding this team, not just the whole server stuff that I just got done talking about. But on top of that, there's also the whole Aiton situation, which has been going on for like a long, oh, kind of a while now. It feels like a long time. It started so, like, actually, it, it must have started last year. Yeah, so last year, going into last season... Uh, it was going to be the last season on Aiton's first contract of his career, his still, you know, his four-year rookie deal, entering the fourth season, and so he was up for contract extension since he was entering the last year of his deal. Um, and so, if teams don't sign those extensions with their players before the season starts, then they can't do it until after the season ends. So, most big-name players on their rookie deals that are like, you know, stars or potential stars, uh, all those guys get that contract extension before the year even starts, before their last season starts. And, you know, if they don't, then usually that's fuel for some sort of like, you know, what's going on here. And so like, I almost kind of wish they didn't have that as a thing because, you know, what if a team's just trying to make like the smart business decision and it's like, more than likely, you know, I'm like 95% sure I'm still going to want to sign this deal with this player next offseason. But, you know, maybe he has a uh, injury. There's an injury concern with him or, you know, 
certain things that you kind of want to wait a year to see what things look like. And then you can sign the contract extension. If a team, even with the purest of intentions, wants to do that, it's going to create a big mess with their relationship with the player because the player's going to feel slighted and um, disrespected in comparison to, you know, his peers who, who are all getting it because, you know, teams just want to go above and beyond to show that they're bought in on their player, obviously. So if they're, they have the opportunity to max them out, give them as much money as they possibly can a year before they otherwise would, then yeah, going to take that, that opportunity to show them how much we're you know committed to them. That's basically what it is. But yeah, if a player doesn't get that, that's usually a sign of something going on. And so that became a story last offseason when uh, an agreement was not reached on his contract extension. And so apparently what the issue was, was uh, eight and one, the five year max, but the Suns didn't think he was quite worth that. So I think they were, I think they were willing to give him five years just for less money, but what their like official offer, I guess was, was a four year max instead. So it doesn't give him the fifth year. So how this situation ended up playing out was, you know, pretty good for the Suns side of things, but not in terms of like their relationship with Aiton because they basically stuck to their word of we're not going to give you the five-year max. And so when free agency came around, since he was on his rookie deal, Aiton entered restricted free agency, um, which basically just means any offer that that player receives in restricted free agency, the team that they currently belong to has the option or the rights to match that deal and basically just sign him on that same exact deal that he was offered from another team, regardless of, you know, if, if a player is like, Hey, no, I, I don't want to return to my team. Um, I'd, I'd rather go to this other team that gave me the same money or whatever. Like the team can override that because they're like a restricted free agent. So they just waited until somebody came and offered him the four year max, which is all that, another team can offer the reason why <laughs> sorry um the reason why deandre ayton he was kind of screwed in this scenario is because with bird rights in the nba named after larry bird is where that name comes from but the bird rights are basically like you know on a player's contract the team that drafts you initially gets your bird rights and, and so basically what that means is they can sign you to a bigger deal for a fifth year so they have and I think they can actually sign you for more money per year too, if I'm not mistaken. It was basically enacted just to encourage players to stay with the teams that drafted them. But, you know, bird rights, they are in the player's contract so they can, if they get traded, their bird rights will get traded as well to whatever team, you know, that they were traded to. And I think they can regain their bird rights if they're, say, like, if they enter free agency and they go sign a four-year max with a different team that they weren't just playing for, after that deal is up, then that team now has the capability to sign them to a five-year max money deal because they now have their bird rights because they were the team that they were just signed to, if that makes sense at all. So basically, the Suns were the only team this offseason that were even capable of signing Aiden to the deal that he wanted. And the deal they were willing to give him 
was the maximum that any other team could give him. So they just waited until somebody else, I think it was Indiana, came along and offered him the four-year max, and so then the Suns picked him up on that deal. But, you know, this whole financial situation with Aiton, that whole drama had been looming over the team for basically this whole last season, and it kind of came to a boiling point in the playoffs where they got taken down by the Mavericks um, in, like, an historic fashion, which we don't need to get into, but they got absolutely hammered in a game seven, I want to say, maybe game six even. But the last game of the series um, where they got kicked out. But Aiton, I believe, I can't remember now exactly what happened, but he um, was he got into a, a fight or feud with Monty Williams, the head coach, and I think just sat out. He took himself out of the game. And apparently in media day uh, with the Phoenix Suns, which was just a few days ago now, DeAndre Ayton was doing press interviews and a reporter asked him if he had mended things over with Monty Williams and, you know, basically just asked like, when, when was the last time you guys talked or, you know, something like that. And then Ayton said that he and Monty Williams haven't even spoken since the end of the season, since that night where that happened. So that's probably not a great sign. You know, he's showing up at training camp and he's, it looks like he's playing so far. So who knows at this point what that situation looks like or what it's going to play out like. It kind of scares me a little bit because Aiton is a huge part of their success, especially now with JaVale McGee gone, which I haven't even got into yet. Key losses, but uh, McGee is one of those. He was their backup center last year. So that's going to be tough trying to navigate that situation. But now a whole, like even if that was, those were the only problems I'd still probably feel better about the record, uh, like my prediction for the record, but that is not the end of their worries. It turns out because apparently Jay Crowder is very, very upset with having to potentially come off the bench this season and be really their sixth man. I, I think he would definitely be their sixth man. I don't see how he wouldn't be. I guess I don't know what the idea that Money Williams had was exactly, but really that last season, um, in most people's eyes, I think Cam Johnson kind of surpassed Crowder as maybe a little bit more vital or impactful of the um, role player, you know, big 3 and D wing on their team. You know, but Crowder continued to start just because, you know, he's more of a veteran. Cam is a bit younger earlier in his career so you know I didn't think it was that crazy I wouldn't even think it was it would be that crazy if they started the year again with Jay Crowder starting because I mean Cam Johnson's been really good coming off the bench for them and um, they both play like starter level minutes the they're like you know they're both in the top six those are their top six guys but you know Cam's just a lot more consistent really as a catch and shoot player I think Crowder is more important on the defensive end but you know his his shooting though is so sporadic it really comes in waves and cam johnson's just such a more you know steady reliable option i think he's a better decision maker too i would say probably but basically jay crowder feels slighted that he's not going to be starting for the suns potentially and so he wants a a trade which is kind of shocking because apparently he like recently compared himself to pj tucker saying that he wants to be a role player that just only plays on winning teams and you know is kind of like the 
bearer of success to a franchise in, in a way, I guess. But it's like this is the opposite sort of move that that player should like would would make. I'm kind of paraphrasing Kevin O'Connor now. This was kind of the take he had on it, but like to be an important ingredient into a championship roster, wouldn't the best decision be to, you know, do what your coach wants and buy in fully to the system and come off the bench and play your role. And like, you'd still be like, you would go from like 28 minutes a game to like 25 minutes a game. Like it wouldn't be that major of an adjustment. And who knows, like 82 game season, there'd probably be stretches of the season with injuries and stuff where he is playing that, you know, starting lineup role. But why go about it this way? I, I guess is what I'm confused about. And it just adds to the, the sun's problems. But apparently Jay Crowder isn't even attending training camp because he wants to be moved. And so they are currently working on a deal to move him. But I think it's going to take a little while because the Suns say they are looking for somebody to replace Crowder. So they want a rotation level three and D wing. But what Jay Crowder wants is to be moved to a contender. So I don't know if there's a lot of those out there that are like, hey, let's swap the the you know rotation level three and D wing that we have right now. Let's just swap them for for Jay Crowder. Like I don't see is that as it's like a very lateral move, you know, just in theory. Most possible moves that you can make out of those parameters would be a lateral move for both teams. I get why the Suns would want to do it because. Jay Crowder's disgruntled, but why why would the potential suitor do it unless like the Suns throw in a second round draft pick or you know, something like that? But I don't I don't know. Not sure what's gonna happen with that. So I don't even know how to go about doing this like in rotation stuff, but I guess I haven't even talked about key losses and key additions yet. Totally. So key losses, I have Crowder on here. I have Aiden on here as like a question mark. Like he's not like a loss, but he's an important thing that is now like in question not in question of whether he's going to play i don't think i don't know if it'll go that far but in question of like what it's gonna what the season's gonna look like with him i you know that type of thing so and then javel mcgee is definitely a loss um he got picked up by the mavs this offseason um aaron holiday i have him on here alfred payton uh just kind of their guard depth that they lost and then their key additions i only have two guys i'm not sure Maybe they've added some more since then, but uh, since I filled this out, but I think all they really added was Damian Lee from the Warriors and Josh Akogi from the Wolves. So in the rotation, I'll just read off their starters first because you know they went from being like a clear top six to now a clear top five with Crowder out. But, you know they have Chris Paul, Devin Booker, uh, Mikael Bridges would be the three, Cam Johnson at the four, and DeAndre Ayton at the five, and then Crowder who like whoever is going to replace him or if some things turn around Crowder would be that six man, probably backup guards. They have Landry Shamit campaign. I feel like those guys will probably get uh, some minutes. Damien Lee. I don't know, maybe some spot minutes here and there. And then backup wings. I have Tory Craig. I think will probably be the biggest minutes getter out of this group. And then spot minutes kind of similar to the Damien Lee thing with Ish Wainwright and Josh Kogi. You know, unless they don't get a great return for Crowder, then maybe Ish Wainwright is going to kind of grow into, you know, a backup wing role to kind of replace those those minutes. Probably behind Torrey Craig, though. And then backup bigs, I have 
Bismack Biombo, who will probably be their primary backup center, especially when playing with Chris Paul. And then Dario Saric is there as an option for like a stretch big. And then they also have Jock Lawndale from the Spurs. But I don't know if he'll really break the rotation very much. For the ceiling on this team, I have 62 and 20. If things click and everything goes right, then I think they can probably be around there. And their floor I have them at is 43 and 39. And, you know, that's basically like what I've been talking about. If all those red flags kind of rear their ugly head, I guess, they might end up in a situation similar to that. And my reasonable prediction for right now is at 52 and 30. If I had to guess if they're going to go over 52 or under, I'd probably say over. But again, you know, just because of the uncertainty, I, I feel iffy putting it any higher than, than this at 52. But yeah, that was my prediction on the Suns. Now moving on to the Sacramento Kings. Their record last year was 30 and 52, which was good for the 12th best record in the West. For key losses, I have Dante DiVincenzo, Damian Jones, um, Justin Holiday, Jeremy Lamb, and Maurice Harkless. I think the only one that really matters a whole lot for that out of that group um, is probably Dante DiVincenzo. The rest of the guys, you know, they didn't play a whole lot. But the thing is, they may have lost Dante DiVincenzo, but uh, with some guys that they added this offseason, they've kind of made up for that loss pretty well, namely in Malik Monk from the Lakers and Kevin Herter from the Hawks. And in the draft, they got Keegan Murray with the fourth pick out of Iowa. Um, and he's looked really good in summer league and stuff. He was more of the immediate contributor type of pick in the lottery this year. One of the older players in the draft. But he'll definitely be a great addition to this Kings team that's just trying to really be competitive this year. You know, they've gone 16 years now without, you know, making the playoffs, which is uh, an NBA record. And I think it's it might be a record in like North American professional sports. Don't quote me on that. I think it's the longest current one, though, um, out of all sports. Might not be the all-time record. But yeah, their mode of operations last year or so now really has been make the play-in at all costs, which is not really the playoffs, but it's close enough, I guess, for the Kings. And I think they actually have a pretty decent shot at making that this year. Definitely doesn't look too bad. Uh, before I move on, I feel like I forgot to mention that they also got Matthew Vadova in free agency. Outback Jesus being one of his nicknames on basketball reference. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to play a whole lot, but just kind of a fun throwback to those Cavs teams in like 2015, 2016 in the playoffs. But yeah, he's back in the NBA now and he's on the Kings. But yeah, for the Kings this year, they have a new head coach in Mike Brown after firing Luke Walton, I think at the start of last year. That feels like forever ago now, but I think that was at the start of last year where they fired him. I want to say, and then Alvin Gentry was their interim head coach who took over the rest of the season, but now they have Mike Brown, who obviously has a lot of head coaching experience uh, with the Lakers and with the Nuggets, and I think he's been uh, the head assistant on the Warriors the, the past few years now, I want to say, but it'll be interesting to see um, what he does, I guess, to shake things up. Like I said before, I think they have a decent shot at making the play-in. You know, they just need to get in that 10 seed in the West. And right now, you know, just doing my reasonable predictions, I have them as the 11th best team in the Western Conference. But honestly, uh, like I said, just looking at it, uh, there's a huge drop off after them in the West down to the Spurs. 
And then, you know, kind of another little drop off, I think, after the Spurs down to the Thunder and the Jazz and the Rockets. So, like, I don't think it's very likely that any of those teams below them would pass them. Like, the Spurs are the only team that I could maybe see. Maybe, like, kind of maybe OKC if they just really abandoned the whole tanking concept and really try to win games this year without Chet. I don't know. Maybe. But I find that pretty unlikely. I think it's much more likely that they pass one of the two teams in front of them uh, at the 9 and 10 spots. And those teams being the Lakers and the Blazers. Spoiler alert. I haven't got to the Northwest division yet, but the Blazers, I have them slightly above the Kings at the 10 spot in the West. But I think they have a pretty good shot. Kings do, that is, at getting into the that 10 spot. If one of those teams, you know, struggles with injuries, um, which is definitely possible with, you know, Blazers with Dame, if they if they lose Dame for a stretch of the season, they're definitely going to uh, take a nosedive. The Lakers, who knows, but AD and LeBron the past couple of years have struggled to stay on the court for most of the season. So we'll see what happens. I don't know if this really saves the Kings franchise for them to just make a play-in um, tournament, but I guess... I don't know. It seems like that's what they think is going to happen. But yeah, in the rotation, I have De'Aaron Fox, obviously, and DeMontis Bonus, which, yeah, forgot to mention them going all in last year to try to make the play in. Um, one of those, you know, the signs of them doing that was was obviously trading Tyrese Halliburton, who was one of their young studs, one of the only ones on the team that was like, you know, their bright spot. He's probably the most valuable asset on the team, to be honest. Uh, they traded him away for Demontis Sabonis, which is, you know, much more of a uh, fully formed or like, what's it called? Player that's, that, you know, that's closer to his prime, much more closer to his ceiling as a player, which he's still a really good player. But, you know, a lot of Kings fans didn't like that because they felt like the Kings were kind of building their ceiling lower than it was or than it could have been just to raise their floor a little bit. So, you know, it's a give and take, but it didn't really pan out last year with Sabonis missing some games after they got him. And then also really like they were kind of the same team record wise after they acquired Sabonis. Um, I don't know if that, you know, it wasn't big sample size, obviously, because it's uh, just post deadline. But um, and I think he missed like 11 games. One, I want to say, you know, a handful of games between 10 and 15, something like that. Um, he missed after the deadline. So. That's a big chunk of that. It's like half of the games. But yeah, so in the rotation, I have De'Aaron Fox at the point guard. Um, probably Malik Monk or Kevin Herter, maybe. I'll probably put Kevin Herter in there at the two. At the three, I have... Um, well, actually, I shouldn't go with the starting lineup because I think there's a couple different configurations for it that you could go with. So I'll just say, you know, the top of the rotation is going to be Fox and Sabonis, obviously, as their two main stars. Harrison Barnes is going to be, you know, one of those next guys. Keegan Murray probably will either start or be one of the main pieces off the bench at the beginning of the season as a rookie. And then for those smaller wings, there's Malik Monk and Kevin Herter. One of those guys will definitely start, maybe both of them. Um, you could do that. I'm guessing they won't start Sabonis next to another center. So they'll probably have Barnes or Murray at the four and the other one at the three or have Monk and Herder in there and only one of those guys, one of Barnes and Murray at the four. So I think that is probably 
the different configurations we'll see from their starting lineup. Then they have Rashawn Holmes, one of the best backup centers in the NBA, coming off their bench. Davion Mitchell is still there on the bench. I think he'll definitely get a pretty decent role going into his second season. And then, you know, kind of drops off after that to uh, Metu, um, who, you know, we saw play quite a bit last year. He might be consistently in the rotation. Uh, either him or Trey Lyles, maybe. They probably will be in some competition for some minutes. Terrence Davis is another guy they can go to as like a small wing. Matthew Delvadova, who they just got in the offseason as a point guard coming off the bench, might see some time. Um, and then some other big guys that are buried deeper on their bench are like Alex Len and Namias Keda, I think is how you pronounce his name. I don't even remember how to pronounce that guy's name. Um, I just have his last name written here. But, you know, he's a prospect. He might be able to get some minutes this year, too. Who knows? Uh, so they have a lot of options. They got one, two, three, four, five. I think they have like a clear top eight with Fox through Davian Mitchell. And then Metu, Lyles, Davis, probably their next three. And then Delhi, Alex Lynn, and Kada. So that's 14 guys. Um, so this definitely won't be the rotation, but those are some names that I see you know, that could possibly get some spot minutes here and there at the very least. So yeah, the ceiling for the Sacramento Kings that I have from is 44 and 38. I would be very surprised if they win more than that. This is like kind of the best case scenario, I feel like for their season. And I think Kings fans would be head over heels for that record. You know, that'd probably make them like the eight seed in the West, something around there. But yeah, I think that's honestly, it's definitely within the realm of possibility, especially with just things not breaking right for other teams, stuff like that. I think 44 and 38 is still within their grasp. And the floor I put them at is 29 and 53. I'd be I'd be very surprised if they win less than that. So I think that's a good number to put them at for the floor, 29, 53. And then reasonable prediction um, I got them at is 37 and 45. Because, you know, I, I feel like they're going to win probably at least somewhere in the 34 to 35 games range unless you know things just really go bad and obviously that's why i have the floor lower than that but that's why i put it at 37 just because i could see them right around that range 34 to 39 wins probably sounds pretty realistic so yeah uh, i think that will be it for the kings then honestly gonna be excited to see what happens with them this year if they make the plan or not that's kind of another piece of entertainment here in the Western Conference. See if they finally break that playoff drought while they're still in a very, very competitive conference. And also, I'm not going to count them uh, as breaking the playoff drought if all they do is get in the play-in. Like, they have to get into the playoff tournament. They have to get into the top eight teams in the playoffs for it to to break, in my opinion. Because um, the play-in is not the playoffs. It's like an extension uh, to kind of mix things up in, in terms of who gets in to the playoffs. So it's kind of this middle season, not postseason and not the regular season. But yeah, that'll be it for the Kings. And so that will basically be it for the Pacific Division then of the Western Conference, which means that this episode should be over now. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, tune in next week or whenever the next episode will come out. I'm not sure when, but uh, not too long, hopefully. And that will be the Northwest Division. I'm going to try to get through all of these teams before the season starts. It's kind of sneaking up on me now. But yeah, I'll be going over the Northwest Division, which is 
uh, the Denver Nuggets, the Minnesota Timberwolves, the Oklahoma City Thunder, Portland Trailblazers, and the Utah Jazz. So that should be another good episode. In the meantime, check out the YouTube channel, do all that stuff I said at the beginning. But other than that, thank you guys for listening. I'll talk to you guys next time. Mm-hmm.